Before we begin, if you like what you hear on Mile High Report Radio Podcast, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and go ahead and click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Mile High Report Radio with your hosts, Adam Malnati and Ian St. Clair. Get involved with the Denver Broncos conversation at milehighreport.com. And now it's time to get to work. Ian, we are um, kind of celebrating here a little bit in a weird way as we uh, start to record this podcast on a Tuesday after finding out that the Denver Broncos have selected former head coach Mike Shanahan to be the next inductee into the Broncos ring of fame, uh, an honor that some might say is long overdue. Uh, he certainly has uh, a place in our hearts as a Bronco fan, as Broncos country, but he, he will be uh, getting his name thrown up there in the ring for the ring of fame. He'll have a ceremony and all those wonderful things. And it's, uh, it, it's been a long time coming and certainly well-deserved. As I tweeted when it came out, he's without question the best head coach in franchise history. And it's, it's definitely deserved. Hopefully the next step is to get him into the pro football hall of fame. Um, I, I just think that's the, the next step for, for coach Shanahan. And I think it's, it's going to be uh, a fun event. Needless to say, 2021 is going to be an epic year for the Broncos because um, it was announced that Shanahan is in the, the Broncos ring of fame. He'll get inducted, but it won't be until 2021 because of this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So that will mean that Steve Atwater will get into the pro football hall of fame. Peyton Manning will get into the pro football hall of fame, but he will also be inducted into the Broncos ring of fame. So that would make Shanahan and Peyton Manning your next two inductees into the ring of fame. And it will happen in 2021. Uh, it's uh, it's actually pretty exciting if you think about sort of the celebrations that are going to be going on around some of the greatest Broncos in the history of uh, of the team of the franchise. Uh, it would be even better, and I don't know if this is even a possibility. It would be made even better if Mike Shanahan could get that consideration for the Hall of Fame in 2021, and then you would have what would amount to be an incredible celebration of, of Broncos history and the accomplishments of, of the greatest of all time uh, for the fans of the Denver Broncos. And, and you know, Mike Shanahan is certainly, like you said, he's certainly deserving. I think when we uh, found out that uh, Jimmy Johnson, Jim, Jimmy Johnson and, uh, and, and Bill Cower were going into the hall of fame, the conversation in Broncos country was, well, they're not better than, than Mike Shanahan was. So why are they getting in ahead of Mike Shanahan? And we could, we could go into sort of the Cowboys and Steelers. It's, it's Cowboys and Steelers country when you get to the Hall of Fame. If you didn't play for the Cowboys or Steelers, then you're, you're, you're not guaranteed a place. Or I guess you could play for the Chiefs, which doesn't make sense. Or the Vikings, which doesn't make sense. Anyway, I, I digress. Or, or the Cardinals. I'll digress now. But if you look at what Mike Shanahan was able to do in the NFL, back-to-back Super Bowls, uh, he put together a prolific offense that every year it was – 
after Terrell Davis's uh, retirement, after he he was no longer with the Broncos, it was okay. Which which running back is he going to plug into this great system that he's created in Denver to help make the Denver Broncos a winning team? Uh, it, it wasn't all candy canes and rainbows, right? And, and there were some struggles down you know down the line as they sort of got closer to the end of his career in Denver. But that being said, he is certainly deserving of a a spot in Canton, and so putting him up in the Ring of Fame is is one of those things that should have happened, I think, a, a long time ago. But it would be very cool if the weight was worth it and he was able to celebrate both of those big things in the, in the same year along with the rest of us in Broncos country. Uh, and that would make it an even bigger year in, in Broncos history if all of those guys were able to celebrate together all of those accolades. So uh, it's, it's a pretty cool thing, uh, but certainly something that is well-deserved. He's one of... He's one of just six head coaches in NFL history to win multiple Super Bowls and be a part of 200-plus wins as a coach with one team. As Patrick Smythe tweeted, he joins Bill Belichick, Don Shula, Tom Landry, Chuck Knoll, and George Seifert with that distinction. Don Shula, Tom Landry, Chuck Knoll are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Bill Belichick will be there. Probably. I would think George Seifert. He's one of those on the. Uh, he's he's like right on the cusp. I think uh, he's there with like Tom Flores with the Raiders. Like he's re- he he's right there on the cusp. Really good, re- like a really solid coach. You know the other thing with Seifert that that's really sort of maybe it's unfair to him, but he inherited Bill Walsh's teams. You know, I mean that team that he started coaching was really Bill Walsh's team, and you you can talk about. Uh, coaches that don't get credit because of the teams that they inherited, uh, you know, and and that's certainly something that, you know, like a Barry Switzer. Remember Barry Switzer inherited the, the the Cowboys from Jimmy Johnson and went on to win a Super Bowl, which that's fine, whatever. But uh, I think that's the knock on Seifert as well. Seifert ends up coaching Bill Walsh's 49ers, and so he doesn't get as much credit as he probably deserves for being a, a fairly great head coach as well. So it's a, it's a really interesting discussion to have. I think that maybe one of the more fascinating things about that discussion is when you talk about some of those guys, Bill Wal- the Bill Walsh tree is is definitely represented there with Shanahan and Seifert because Shanahan is a, is a member of, of that particular coaching tree as well. Well, and the other thing that you have to look at is influence on the game. You mentioned the offense that he ran. I think the statistic was 11 of the 14 years he coached in Denver, he had a 1,000-yard back. That's, I mean, yeah, we, we talk about that all the time. It was, And that was a little bit to the detriment of Terrell Davis and his bid for the Hall of Fame because it, it did start to look like after Davis was gone, it was really just plug and play. You, you pick a running back, and, and they're going to find success in that zone blocking scheme that Shanahan created. And I'm not going to say he created it on his own, but that he implemented in Denver. And then uh, with the help of Alex Gibbs and, and the way that that offense re- was run, uh, he definitely had an offensive line that was able to create holes. And as a running back, if it's one cut and go, you're definitely going to be able to find success if you're good at that. And they were able to find running backs that could do that. Uh, and it was all based on, on Shanahan's ability to coach a good offense. I, I think that, the biggest knock on Shanahan, and, and I will be, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw a little little cold water on this, uh, is that he, just like most coaches, really struggled with making changes that could make the team better. And the thing that sort of 
saw him have to leave Denver was his his decision not to fire the defensive coaching staff before he was fired himself for whatever reason when they had what what you would call a terrible defense right they were what they were eight and eight that year and Jay Cutler looked like he was developing into a really good quarterback but the defense was so bad that they couldn't you know they couldn't get over the hump and he wouldn't change that defense that to me is a bit of a knock on Shanahan but I think it's a similar knock you could put on most head coaches where they have a, an idea of what they want to have happen and they're going to implement their plan and if you don't believe in their plan they don't really care they're going to do what they're going to do but I, I think that's maybe the only knock you could really have on him in terms of comparing Bill Cower and Jimmy Johnson to Mike Shanahan I don't think it's fair because Bill Cower and Jimmy Johnson can't touch Mike Shanahan Mike Shanahan should be a lock for the Pro Football Hall of Fame there is no question about it and I mentioned the impact on the game think of how many offenses run his offense San Francisco 49ers, the Green Bay Packers, the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah. Those well, are some of the best offenses yeah, so, in football. <laughs> some of the best in football. Well, you have Mike Holmgren, uh, who was running the same, a similar offense in, in Green Bay because he's also from that Bill Walsh tree, right? So there's, there's Mike Holmgren there. Uh, when you talk about – the Los Angeles Rams, who had an incredible offense a couple of years ago. Sean McVay is is a descendant of that particular coaching tree as well. I think what, what is fair to say about Shanahan, though, is that he took what he, what he did in Denver when he was an offensive coordinator. Because remember, he was an offensive coordinator in Denver before he became the Raiders head coach and then eventually came, you know, came back after spending some time as the offensive coordinator in San Francisco – he took that stuff and he he sort of brought it along with him everywhere that he went and continued to perfect and continue to to create offenses that worked and the the thing that i loved about shanahan as a head coach especially as an offensive head coach and a lot of coaches do this but it just seemed like he was better at it it just felt like he had a a really good grasp of it he understood the the necessity of starting fast and putting together a set of plays, 15 plays or so that you could run to start the game that were going to guarantee you points because points are uh, incredibly important throughout the game, obviously. But if you can start off fast and score points early, that puts pressure on the other team to perform at the same clip, right? They have to then answer back. So it was really fascinating to me the way that he would take the offense, and yes, it's a really good offense, but then also create a sort of mini game plan at the beginning of every game that was we're going to score points using these plays and this is how we're going to run it it's scripted everybody on the field that plays offense knows what we're going to do it's about preparation it's about knowing knowing where you're supposed to go doing your job being prepared for contingencies if something goes wrong but having that preparation that made your offense click that made it better i thought that was uh, an incredibly important aspect to the way that he coached the Denver Broncos and the way that he coached in general. And, uh, you know, he, I think he gets a little bit of a knock when we start to talk about the hall of fame. I think he gets a little bit of a knock because of the way things went down in Washington with the soon to no longer be Redskins probably. And, um, it, that, that might not be fair. Nobody has 
found success in Washington DC uh, at the you know as, as a football coach and I I can't remember how long I mean even Joe Gibbs went back and failed after a while so you know let's let's maybe not hold that against him because I don't think we should hold that against anybody as long as Dan Snyder's the the owner there it doesn't matter who coaches him and there's the underlying factor for everything that is associated with Washington it goes back to Dan Snyder so we shouldn't hold that against anybody let alone Mike Shanahan it's just it's nice to have Shanahan finally get this recognition. It's obviously deserved. And now hopefully the next stop is Canton for him. But as you were talking about Mike Shanahan and Alex Gibbs' own blocking system and how it was held against Terrell Davis, isn't it interesting that now that Terrell Davis got that recognition, there's a guy who was the anchor for that offensive line who is getting no credit. And we've touched on this on the past. You can't say that, well, it wasn't really Terrell Davis. It was the system and it was the offensive line. And then give the credit to Terrell Davis and get him in. And then not get Tom Nalen into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It is just absolutely ridiculous that that is now being done, which it shouldn't surprise people with the selection committee. But it. I, I cannot wrap my head around how Tom Nalen is not at least a finalist every year when the one thing that you heard against Terrell Davis from guys like Peter King and all those other morons on the selection committee was that, well, you just plug and play anyone in there and they can do it. It wasn't really Terrell Davis. And then not get Tom Nalen into the Hall of Fame. Well, I, I, you're ab- you're absolutely right, and it's funny because the argument really extends out. It goes beyond just Tom Nalen, and then it does extend to Mike Shanahan, and really, why not Alex Gibbs, and and his ability to be maybe one of the greatest offensive line coaches in NFL history. I know we we talk about Mike Mike Munchak being uh, the best offensive line coach in the NFL today, and how important that is. Alex Gibbs, as the offensive line coach in Denver, was a big reason why. That offensive line was so good, and he gets very little credit outside of Denver and outside of the you know sort of the the football world. And I understand that the you know most fans don't really care about what goes on in the trenches or don't there's there's not a real grasp of of how the game is played you know inside right. But it's still one of those things where if you're going to talk about and you're absolutely right about this, if you're going to talk about uh, a player and sort of denigrate them a little bit because of an aspect of the game that they couldn't control. And in this case, I'm talking about keeping Terrell Davis out of the hall of fame because his offensive line was too good. And that offense was too good. And, and any running back could succeed. Well, then you then have to in turn, take a look at that unit and say, well, why was it so good? And and there's no doubt that, that, as you said, the anchor of that offensive line was Tom Nalen. And he deserves recognition for that. Obviously he's not going to get it. I, I mean, it's, that's one of those lost cause things where you just can't, he's just not going to get the recognition he deserves. And that's okay. Except for it's not because it's frustrating because it's just sort of par for the course as a Bronco fan. We've always struggled with that. But then at the same time, I think about how many Broncos have gone into the hall of fame in recent years and how good things have actually been. And you realize that, you know, the tide can turn a little bit. I just don't know how far back, the tide can turn. You know what I'm saying? Like there at a certain point, how far back are we really going to be able to push to get guys into the hall of fame? 
I, I we still are missing Gratishar and Louis Wright. And I mean, there's, there's a, there's a long list of Broncos that deserve to be there. Carl Mecklenburg. So Dan Reeves, sorry, don't want to forget about Danny and his, he, he also deserves it. So, so the list is long, but distinguished and hopefully uh, it'll change a little bit more, but it has been pretty good for us as Bronco fans in the last few years. So you, you can't really complain too much. No, it's it's definitely, especially the last four years, because um, Terrell Davis and then um, Steve Atwater. I, Champ Bailey. Champ Bailey. But Champ Bailey was a lock if there ever was one. So, But to get Terrell Davis and Steve Atwater is hopefully a step. Um, but I, I do agree. I think Tom Nalen is going to fall into that Louis Wright category where they're just – they're never going to be able to cross, cross the threshold, especially with how long it's taken Randy Gratishar. Yeah, it's tough. It's it's a tough one. But, you know, well, let's celebrate Shanahan when it comes time in, in uh, 2021 because that's when this will all take place. And hopefully there will be bigger celebrations on the horizon because of the time and, and those kinds of things will sort of fall together. So, all right. We we do have to talk about some some actual NFL news that is that is a little more broad. And we definitely have to cover it because it does impact the Denver Broncos. And it is the Patrick Mahomes contract. And that's a lot of zeros. <laughs> we just we talk about how many commas and zeros there are and in the in the number that that guy is gonna be making. And it's that's a bit of a bummer, right? Not that anybody in, in Broncos country didn't know that Patrick Mahomes was going to be the starting quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs for at least the next 10 years. But it's still, you look at it and you go, dang, that's that's going to be tough to deal with. It changes the way that the Denver Broncos and other teams in the AFC West will go about putting together their defense, will go about putting together uh, their team in general. Obviously, we've seen that how the Chiefs, it's a copycat league. We've seen that the way the Chiefs do things on offense has been, has influenced a lot of other teams, including the Denver Broncos and what they want to do on offense. It's all about scoring points and speed and uh, you know, that's why you have Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler being the first two picks in the draft for the Denver Broncos in rounds one and two. So it, it, it is one of those things where the Kansas City Chiefs are really influencing the way things are happening. And now you have uh, a mega contract where some reports say it's, it's going to be around 425, 426, 427. When I say that, I'm talking about $100 million uh, up to even as much as $450 million. So the, la- the last I saw, yeah, I'd love to hear some actual real it, numbers. It, it's uh, 488 million. Jeez. So he has surpassed Mike Trout's record for the largest contract in American sports history. And that's a lot of money for a guy who puts ketchup on steak. Yeah. I just, I mean, if you like ketchup on steak, I, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with if you like ketchup on steak, but that's not really the point here. For, if you think about it, and we, we talked about this before we recorded, Mike Trout is the best player in Major League Baseball. I, th- I think we would agree on that, and or, or one of, if you don't want to go as far as I'm willing to go with it. And he has the highest contract I, in baseball. I would say I would the only person that I would put in the category with Mike Trout is Garrett Cole. And I think yeah. Garrett Cole, I, I think, could consider be, as being better than Mike Trout because Garrett Cole – can actually get into the playoffs. And that's not a knock on Mike Trout. I think it's because of the organization he plays for. But Garrett Cole raises all boats. 
as a Yankees fan, we both know what he's going to be able to bring to that team when they finally get back on to the field is going to be huge. Well, I mean, it's because a- they haven't had it in the Bronx since 2009. No, I agree. I I, I don't disagree with that. I, I It's funny when you start to talk about baseball, baseball is so different than football because when you, when you have a great quarterback and we experienced this a few times in Denver with uh, John Elway and then Peyton Manning, and we know what a great quarterback can do for a franchise and how it can change the wins and losses, right? The record is going to change based on who your quarterback is. Baseball is different. Some of the, some, sometimes the best player in the league is the best player, but you only get to bat once every nine times. You are only going to influence a play if the people who are hitting hit you the ball when you're playing defense. And so the the way that you can impact, and this is obviously for non-pitchers, but the way you can impact a game is far less in baseball, no matter how great you are, than in the NFL. And, and another sort of way you could look at this, if you think about the greatest teams in the last 20 years in the NFL, the thing that they have in common is a great quarterback for the most part. Now, that's not every year you're going to have your exceptions. When you start to make your comparison to baseball, and I see exactly what you're doing there, the great teams in baseball, the things that they have in common are great pitching. Not necessarily a great pitcher. If you have one great pitcher, that's fine, but he's only going to do it for you you know, once every five days. So you have to have a great pitching staff. You have to have you know, a, a, a number one ace that's going to be a lockdown guy and then a two and a three that are going to be able to hold their own and maybe a, a stopgap guy at four in that rotation. And then maybe you've got sort of a nice, you know, a nice little plug-in guy at the, in the fifth spot in that rotation so that every five days your, start, your number one starter is being able to come in and having had full rest, be competitive and be effective. Then you also have to have, because this is the way Major League Baseball is today, a deep bullpen. You have to have a, a you know setup guys and close a closer. You have to have there's so much involved with it, but pitching is where you can control the game. And so I understand your your comparison there is really good because Patrick Mahomes is m- more like a pitcher in this. He's he's more like a guy who can af- who can affect the game in a way that's going to produce wins and losses no matter what. Whereas Mike Trout, as great as he is, and he is a great baseball player. He can't impact a game unless he gets to bat at the right time. If you go up to hit and you're the you hit a home run every time you're at bat, but you only hit solo home runs, well, you know that's neat and all, but you're really not scoring that many runs. So I definitely get where you're going with that. Patrick Mahomes makes that team an incredible football team. Let's let's just be real about the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes and the future of that franchise and how the Denver Broncos are going to have to deal with that over the course of at least the next 10, maybe 12, 15 seasons. The other piece of it is Andy Reid. And for those who have listened to this podcast for the I last know. Hang on, four I need a years, second to get over the shock of you saying that. Just, okay, I'm back. I'm better. I, I mean, the combination between Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes is special. I And very few times have we seen something like that in the NFL. Don Shula and Johnny Unitas. There was Bill Walsh and Joe Montana, uh, Mike Holmgren, Brett Favre, Mike Shanahan, John Elway. Very few times has there been something like this. And the fact that it's going to be for the next 10 years is, it's maddening 
But the other thing that it does is it makes me hate Ryan Pace even more because if it wasn't for that MFR, Patrick Mahomes would be in Chicago and he would be signing this 10-year, $500 million contract or whatever it is at Hallis Hall and not at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. So, again, I'm going to make this a regular occurrence on this podcast. It'll take the place of plopping it out there and expecting it to perform is F. Ryan Pace. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. I, I – and I and, and you know me, I live out in uh, in the Chicagoland area. I, I you know this Midwestern uh, landscape of just down and out Bears fans who are crushed by everything that Patrick Mahomes does because they know he could have been theirs if they would have just not been stupid. I guess I don't really know. Uh, it it is um, yeah, it's rough for Bears fans. You know the the thing that I'll be curious to see, and this is. This is where it's going to become a fun chess match. We watched John Elway go about after losing in the 2013 Super Bowl uh, to the Seahawks, which we don't like to talk about, but it is something that's important. He went about putting together a, a, a championship caliber defense and ended up with what a lot of people consider to be one of the top two or three defenses in the history of the NFL. Uh, Pro Football Focus recently ranked them as the number one defense of the 2010s, um, which I would agree with, no matter how good that Legion of Boom defense was in 2013 or how good the 2017 Jags were or what what have you. The, the way that John Elway went about creating a defense that could stop offenses and, and carry the team was impressive. And so now you look at it and you have to ask yourself, what do the Broncos do moving forward? Do they try and run the track race with the Chiefs and create an offense that can keep up with them? Or do they pump their money into the defense and try and slow the Kansas City Chiefs offense down enough that they can be competitive on offense? And I think I think it's interesting to see that we've kind of already seen a little bit of what John Elway wants to do with that based on what they did in free agency after the after the Super Bowl and how they what they did in the draft. They drafted speed, Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler right on top, right? They went and got offensive players that were going to have an impact hopefully right away. And they went out and well, signed. Well, don't forget Albert Ibunam, who uh, also has yes, speed. Albert Ibunam also has speed. So you, you've got you you know they went out and they got fast athletic guys for the offense and then on defense what they do they went out and they they traded for Jarrell Casey which was a a a looking like a an even smarter trade now than before they you know signed Bryce Callahan last year and we believe he exists now that we've seen him on video uh, and it looks like his foot is okay but you know the moves that they have made have been the trade of AJ Boye trade for AJ Boye thank you they sort of signify that John Elway isn't just going to pick one side of the football and fix the problem. John Elway is going to not only put together a defense that can utilize Vic Fangio and Ed Donatel and the scheme that they want to slow down Kansas City, but then pump the speed up on offense and try and get to their level as well. And it, it's going to take sort of a, a mix of young players and, and veterans and speed and power and it's going to be really interesting to see how that works. I'm kind of excited to see how Von Miller and Bradley Chubb on the outside 
are going to have an impact on what happens with, uh, you know, w- when Jarrell Casey is able to get push up the middle, and now you got Patrick Mahomes running for his life. What I think is going to happen is you need to take advantage of Drew Locke's contract because if he lives up to the hype that we've been throwing at him since since December and early January and that all of Broncos country has now and the national media seems to be buying into, you need to take advantage of his rookie contract for these five years. And I guess it would be the next four. And do what you can because it may be a joke right now, but there's potential where Drew Locke, if everything goes in an ideal situation, could make more money than Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. So it, so take advantage of this contract now because if you start to have the success that everyone hopes, the one thing that's being said against the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes is, well, now they're tied to the quarterback and they're not going to be able to pay Chris Jones now. Well, that could be the case for the Broncos in four or five years if Drew Locke lives up to the hype. And I hope it does because I don't want the Denver Broncos to be the Kansas City Chiefs of the 80s and 90s. I want the Broncos to have their quarterback that can battle Patrick Mahomes. And I think they do. I think Drew Locke is the guy to do it. And I I, I really do hope that that turns out to be the case because – that's going to make the rivalry that much more fun. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I do think that if you if you step away from being a Denver Bronco fan for just a moment, and I know that not all of us like to do that, but if you step away from that and you step out of the AFC West and you just look at the landscape and you think, well, what could be a, a lot of fun to watch over the course of the next, I don't know, five, ten years? It would be a battle between Drew Locke and Patrick Mahomes for AFC West uh, supremacy and being able to sort of own that division over the course of the next few years, that would be fun to watch. That would be a great battle to, to be able to, uh, take part in. And so I kind of, I'm kind of excited for the future in, in that respect. I'm excited for the fact that if Drew Locke really is the future of the Denver Broncos, then you have, now you have a battle that's going to take place twice a year, every year, for the rest of their careers. And that that's exciting. Now, as we sit here today talking about it, the concern is, and it clearly looks like this would be uh, a more likely scenario, just because that's the way the world works. The concern is that you end up with Patrick Mahomes just being that great and, you know, Drew Locke being good, but not quite good enough to get over the hump. And that's not what you want. That would not be ideal. But if you if you could envision a world where the Chiefs and the Broncos are battling back and forth for the division every year, and Patrick Mahomes and Drew Locke are locked in some epic, uh, epic games where it's back and forth. I think of John Elway and Joe Montana on Monday night, you know, going back and forth uh, in a, a great game that I turned off before the end and still believe that the Broncos won. I don't know. I, I could be wrong. <laughs> it's just just the way it happens, I think. But if you could imagine doing that every year for the next ten years. Would you sign up for that? Because I would. I'm in. I'm fine with Hell that. Oh yes, I would. So the other, okay. The other thing that the other thing that helps out in all of this is as much as I hate the Baltimore Ravens, 
they might be the thing that's that stands in the way of Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid being a dynasty. Because I think what happened with the Tennessee Titans was an anomaly. Now, I, I unlike my wife, who is a ginormous Lamar Jackson fan. Me too. I don't think the Ravens would have beaten the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game, even if it was in Baltimore. I think the Chiefs were not going to be stopped last year. I just don't think that there was any way for them to do it. And if you look at the matchup between the Ravens and the Chiefs, it's a horrible matchup for the Ravens. Yeah. No, I, I actually which think is, I, I do agree with you on that. Which is why I think they went out and made the additions on defense uh-huh. that they did. Yeah. No, I, the other thing, as, you, as you're sitting there talking, the other thing I'm really thinking about here is you just talk, you just talked about one young quarterback who isn't in the division or isn't, you know, he's not in the AFC West, but is also going to have an impact on the AFC in general. That is going to be someone that the Broncos will have to battle with as well. I, I mean, if you look at the youth uh, at the quarterback position in the NFL today and the potential that some of these quarterbacks have, it actually shapes up to be a pretty exciting time in the NFL just historically speaking, I mean, you could have, and I know that you you don't think that this is what's going to happen, but I don't know because I've seen steady improvement. You could have Buffalo be good with Josh Allen at quarterback. You have. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew you were going to laugh, but it's, look, he's improved. He's gotten a little better. Let's see what. Let's see. I'm going to give him another year. Uh, Did you watch the playoff game against the Texans? No, I didn't actually. I probably should have. But speaking of the Texans, you have Deshaun Watson in Houston, who is, I think, maybe the most underrated of all the quarterbacks I'm going to talk about here. You have Patrick Mahomes. You have Lamar well, Jackson. The problem with Mahomes is he has Bill O'Brien. You mean Deshaun Watson has Bill O'Brien. Yes, he is, or, yeah, Deshaun he is definitely hamstrung by having Bill O'Brien be his head coach. But I have a feeling that won't last too much longer. But you you have Drew Locke. You have you have I, – I would even go so far as to say you have Baker Mayfield in Cleveland and Lamar Jackson I've already mentioned, and you've got uh, Sam Darnold in – New, no, that one. No, I can't. I can't. He's proven nothing at this point, which isn't really his fault. He's stuck in in New York playing for the Jets. That's a bummer for him. So, the the youth at quarterback Tua in Miami, I, the guy to keep an eye on and the team to keep an eye on. Don't you say it. Is the Arizona Cardinals? Oh yes, yeah, Kyler Murray. Because remember, he now has one of the best receivers in football because of that idiot in Houston. I just I'm looking at the quarterback landscape. I'm looking at the players who are going to be impact players moving forward. Like they just absolutely are going to be guys that you have to pay attention to. And in the AFC, there's a lot of young quarterbacks that are going to have an impact on the league. And and interestingly enough, Patrick Mahomes, along with Deshaun Watson, they end up being sort of the elder statesman of that group. If you really look at it, even though they've only been in the league for a few years themselves. So the quarterback position in the AFC especially is 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 pretty well stacked and is going to be sort of fun to watch. The biggest concern is that, uh, you know, Trevor Lawrence ends up playing for, as you like to say, the, the New England Patriots, although I've never been a bigger Cam Newton fan than I am right now. <laughs> just to, well, what's, just to what's, fascinating, what's fascinating about that, because we didn't talk about it last week because we were off, the Broncos play the New England Patriots in Foxborough this year. So Cam Newton's going to get a chance to see his daddy again. It's always nice when you can have a little family reunion. You know, I'm sure Vaughn will go over and give him a hug and tell him that he's proud of him and that he's, you know, trying his best. I'm sure that they'll have that conversation. 
it's really nice of him when you see a father son get together and do those things. So, I mean, how often do you see a father and son on the same football field competing? Not often. You don't see it that often. What, what is a little bit fascinating to me is all these people saying, well, how is Cam Newton going to work with Bill Belichick? Do people forget that Rob Gronkowski played in New England? Yes. And he was more of a character than Cam Newton is? I th- honestly, I, I will say this for Cam Newton. I think he gets, I think he gets the, the, the raw end of the deal far too often when it comes to his character. I, I, I know that he, he should get it for his wardrobe. He should get it for his wardrobe. He should get it for uh, some of the perf- his performance on the field issues. I think he's had, you know, he's clearly had some issues. But as a as a character guy, I, I can't think of anything that he specifically has done. If you want to go back to his college days and his his father asking for money from Mississippi State, and then he ends up at Auburn. You want to do all that stuff? That's I don't care. The NCAA is so corrupt that I don't. I don't care what you do to get your kid on a team or whatever, but just in general, Cam Newton for the most part is a is a really charismatic, interesting, nice guy who seems to care about people, and people just like to dump on him because he had you know a bad Super Bowl because of Von Miller and the Denver Broncos defense, and he hasn't been the same since. Aside from that, what has he done that's so bad? Nothing. So I'm not going to dump on the guy. I and I I'm rooting for his success except for in one week so that the New England Patriots don't end up with Trevor Lawrence as their starting quarterback for the next 15 years. I'm just saying, I don't need that headache in my life. Which I have been saying for a year and a half. Right, and so maybe if you say it enough, it'll go away. I don't know. I don't know how it works. So, All right, well, the other thing that's sort of come out recently that we need to talk about is the shift in preseason. Uh, the Denver Broncos and all of the other franchises in the NFL are moving towards the preseason. They're moving towards training camp. The a lot of the facilities are reopening and it's it's really an interesting time to sort of see all this stuff happening. And training new, camp is set to start in Denver on July 28th. There you go. So that's coming up a lot quicker than you'd think. I mean, these months go by fast even though they drag on forever. The news is that there's only going to be two preseason games. And if it's, that many, it's been out there for a little while that, that it's only going to be two preseason games. And that's clearly going to impact some guys. I think some guys are going to be impacted by that. The guys who won't have the opportunity to put as much, you know, as much action on tape or whatever. But the other turn on this, and you just mentioned it, we might not see any preseason this year. There might be no preseason football. And that would be a really big shift as far as how things would look in the NFL if you don't have any preseason football. So let's focus on two things. So until it's official that there's no preseason games, let's have this conversation based on the fact that there will be two. And I view this as a huge positive, not from a football fan's perspective, because I hate preseason football. The only thing worse than watching preseason football is covering preseason football. It's horrible. I will say that two preseason games would be a huge plus for teams. And I've mentioned this on a previous podcast because why is that? Well, if you look at the first preseason game, the starters usually play a series and then they're done. The second preseason game, they usually maybe play a quarter and then they're done. The third preseason game, typically they would play a half. And in the past, they would play into the third quarter. 
and then they wouldn't even play the fourth preseason game. Well, if you only have two preseason games, your starters are going to play, or should, both of those games, the majority of them. I would have them play a game and a half. That's more than they would play with four preseason games under the old schedule. So you're actually going to get more reps for your starters. They're going to get game speed. They're going to get to what it, they're going to get the recall of what it's like to play at the NFL in a game environment, especially the Broncos with young players. They're going to be able to work with each other against live opponents in a new offense, especially on offense. So I view that as a positive. Now, I get the guys who are going to be on the roster bubble, but that was going to be the case anyway because of what's happened with this COVID stuff, shutting the league down. Those guys are going to be at an uphill battle to begin with because they haven't had minicamp. They haven't had the OTAs. And I think they're going to be incredibly limited in training camp if there is a training camp. So I, I view it as a positive. Now, I hope they take the two preseason games going forward, just stick with two. But I also think that there's probably not going to be any preseason games. Yeah, it's interesting. We So there was a tweet today that was sent out by Robert Griffin III, uh, who is a, a backup quarterback for Lamar Jackson. And he, th- he, I think, believes that there aren't going to be any preseason games. And when this was announced – Brandon McManus also tweeted about it saying that he doesn't think there will be actual preseason games. So uh, he's the player rep for the national football players say, association he, for the Broncos. So he's, he, he's inside. he would probably know. Yeah. He's not, he's on the inside there with that stuff. So he might have a, uh, you know, he might have more information for us than just what it's like to kick while holding a drink in your hand. So it, it would be interesting to see how that would work. I, I like the idea of two preseason games. I think you're, you're absolutely right about, you have two preseason games, maybe game one, your starters play into the second quarter. I think that's probably what you what you get from there. And then in the in the next game, then you probably have them play uh, into the third quarter, something like that. And then they're going to actually get game simulation. Playing one series, that could be you go out, your quarterback throws three incomplete passes, you punt, and you're done for the day. That doesn't really simulate games for anybody. So two preseason games would be great. I just... Uh, I just think that it would be um, not, it would be interesting to see how everything plays out if they end up not being able to get those preseason games in, and now you're just starting the season without any real preseason. Although my my guess is, and I don't want to be a negative Nelly here, I don't want to dump on things, but if you don't have preseason games, I would be surprised if you ended up having regular season games. I, I feel like that's kind of a precursor, and the NFL has been pushing their decisions back and back and back and back and back. But if you if you cancel the preseason, I don't know how you can go into a, a regular season feeling confident enough to play regular season games. I think the key with the NFL is what happens with Major League Baseball and then what happens with the NBA and NHL. If the MLB is forced to shut down, there will not be an NFL season. If the MLB starts and they cannot finish their 60-game season – you will not see the National Football League in 2020. So a lot of it is going to depend upon what happens with Major League Baseball come July 23rd and July 24th when they kick off the sprint of a 60-game season. And then a couple days later, 
The NBA is set to start on July 28th, and the NHL is set to do its return to play in its two hub cities for the Eastern and Western conferences. So a lot of what happens in the National Football League is going to be determined by those three leagues. If the MLB is able to do it and they don't have any outbreaks, they don't have players testing positive and they have to shut down, it's a good sign for the National Football League. Same with the NBA, which I still don't know how they're going to make this work in the hotbed of coronavirus that is Florida, but we'll see. I think the NHL made a wise choice with their hub cities of being in Canada. We're not going to get into a political debate about all this. (laughs) So I, but I do think what happens with those three leagues is going to set the path for what happens with the NFL. You've been listening to Mile High Report Radio. Get involved in the discussion at milehighreport.com. And as always, go Broncos. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.